Chapter seventy nine of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seventy nine The Lemonade. Morel was, in fact, very happy. Monsieur Noirtier had just sent for him, and he was in such haste to know the reason of his doing so that he had not stopped to take a cab, placing infinitely more dependence on his own two legs than on the four legs of a cab-horse. He had therefore set off at a furious rate from the Rue Melee, and was hastening with rapid strides in the direction of the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Morel advanced with a firm, manly tread, and poor Barrois followed him as he best might. Morel was only thirty-one. Barrois was sixty years of age. Morel was deeply in love, and Barrois was dying with heat and exertion. These two men, thus opposed in age and interests, resemble two parts of a triangle, presenting the extremes of separation, yet nevertheless possessing their point of union. This point of union was Noirtier, and it was he who had just sent for Morel, with the request that the latter would lose no time in coming to him, a command which Morel obeyed to the letter, to the great discomfiture of Barrois. On arriving at the house, Morel was not even out of breath, for love lends wings to our desires, but Barrois, who had long forgotten what it was to love, was sorely fatigued by the expedition he had been constrained to use. The old servant introduced Morel by a private entrance, closed the door of the study, and soon the rustling of a dress announced the arrival of Valentine. She looked marvellously beautiful in her deep mourning dress and Morel experienced such intense delight in gazing upon her that he felt as if he could almost have dispensed with the conversation of her grandfather. But the easy chair of the old man was heard rolling along the floor, and he soon made his appearance in the room. Noirtier acknowledged by a look of extreme kindness and benevolence the thanks which Morel lavished on him for his timely intervention on behalf of Valentine and himself an intervention which had saved them from despair. Morel then cast on the invalid an interrogative look as to new favour which he designed to bestow on him. Valentine was sitting at a little distance from them, timidly awaiting the moment when she should be obliged to speak. Noirtier fixed his eyes on her. "'Am I to say what you told me?' asked Valentine. Noirtier made a sign that she was to do so. "'Monsieur Morel,' said Valentine to the young man, who was regarding her with the most intense interest. "'My grandfather, Monsieur Noirtier, had a thousand things to say, which he told me three days ago, and now he has sent for you, that I may repeat them to you. I will repeat them, then, and since he has chosen me as his interpreter, I will be faithful to the trust and will not alter a word of his intentions.' "'Oh, I am listening with the greatest impatience,' replied the young man. "'Speak, I beg of you.' Valentine cast down her eyes. This was a good omen for Morel, for he knew that nothing but happiness could have the power of thus overcoming Valentine. "'My grandfather intends leaving this house,' said she, "'and Barrois is looking out suitable apartments for him in another.' "'But you, Mademoiselle de Villefort,' "'You who are necessary to Monsieur Noirtier's happiness.' "'I?' interrupted Valentine. 
I shall not leave my grandfather. That is an understood thing between us. My apartment will be close to his. Now, Monsieur de Villefort must either give his consent to this plan or his refusal. In the first case, I shall leave directly, and in the second, I shall wait till I am of age, which will be in about ten months. Then I shall be free. I shall have an independent fortune, and— And what? demanded Morel. And with my grandfather's consent, I shall fulfil the promise which I have made you. Valentine pronounced these last few words in such a low tone that nothing but Morel's intense interest in what she was saying could have enabled him to hear them. "'Have I not explained your wishes, Grandpapa?' said Valentine, addressing Noitier. "'Yes,' looked to the old man. "'Once under my grandfather's roof, Monsieur Morel can visit me in the presence of my good and worthy protector.' If we still feel that the union we contemplated will be likely to ensure our future comfort and happiness, in that case I shall expect Monsieur Morel to come and claim me at my own hands. But alas, I have heard it said that hearts inflamed by obstacles to their desire grew cold in time of security. I trust we shall never find it so in our experience. Oh! cried Morel, almost tempted to throw himself on his knees before Noirtier and Valentine, and to adore them as two superior beings. What have I ever done in my life to merit such unbounded happiness? Until that time, continued the young girl in a calm and self-possessed tone of voice, we will conform to circumstance, and be guided by the wishes of our friends, so long as those wishes do not tend finally to separate us. In a word, and I repeat it because it expresses all I wish to convey, we will wait. And I swear to make all the sacrifices which this word imposes, sir, said Morel, not only with resignation, but with cheerfulness. Therefore, continued Valentine, looking playfully at Maximilien, no more inconsiderate actions, no more rash projects, for you surely would not wish to compromise one who from this day regards herself as destined honourably and happily to bear your name. Morel looked obedience to her commands. Noirtier regarded the lovers with a look of ineffable tenderness, while Barrois, who had remained in the room in the character of a man privileged to know everything that passed, smiled on the youthful couple as he wiped the perspiration from his bald forehead. "'How what you look, my good Barois,' said Valentine. "'Ah, oh, I have been running very fast, mademoiselle. But I must do Monsieur Morel the justice to say that he ran still faster.' Noirtier directed their attention to a waiter, on which was placed a decanter containing lemonade and a glass. The decanter was nearly full, with the exception of a little which had been already drunk by Monsieur Noirtier. "'Come, Barois,' said the young girl, "'take some of this lemonade. I see you are coveting a good draught of it.' "'The fact is, mademoiselle,' said Barois, "'I am dying with thirst, and since you are so kind as to offer it to me, I cannot say I should at all object to drinking your health in a glass of it.' "'Take some, then.' and come back immediately. Barrois took away the waiter, and hardly was he outside the door 
which in his haste he forgot to shut, and they saw him throw back his head and empty to the very dregs the glass which Valentine had filled. Valentine and Morel were exchanging their adieux in the presence of Noirtier when a ring was heard at the doorbell. It was the signal of a visit. Valentine looked at her watch. "'It is past noon,' said she, "'and to-day is Saturday. I dare say it is the doctor, Grandpapa.' Noirtier looked his conviction that she was right in her supposition. "'You will come in here, and Monsieur Morel had better go. Do you not think so, Grandpapa?' "'Yes,' signed the old man. "'Barois!' cried Valentine. "'Barois!' "'I am coming, mademoiselle,' replied he. "'Barois will open the door for you,' said Valentine, addressing Morel. "'And now remember one thing, monsieur, officer.' that my grandfather commands you not to take any rash or ill-advised step which would be likely to compromise our happiness i promised him to wait replied morel and i will wait at this moment barois entered who rang asked valentine dr d'avrigny said barois staggering as if he would fall what is the matter barois said valentine the old man did not answer, but looked at his master with wild, staring eyes, while with his cramped hand he grasped a piece of furniture to enable him to stand upright. "'He is going to fall,' cried Morel. The rigours which had attacked Barois gradually increased. The features of the face became quite altered, and the convulsive movement of the muscles appeared to indicate the approach of a most serious nervous disorder. Noirtier, seeing Barois in this pitiable condition, showed by his looks all the various emotions of sorrow and sympathy which can animate the heart of a man. Barois made some steps towards his master. "'Ah, sir,' said he, "'tell me, what is the matter with me? I am suffering. I cannot see. A thousand fiery darts are piercing my brain. Oh, don't touch me. Pray don't.' By this time his haggard eyes had the appearance of being ready to start from their sockets. His head fell back, and the lower extremities of the body began to stiffen. Valentine uttered a cry of horror. Morel took her in his arms as if to defend her from some unknown danger. "'Monsieur Daverny! Monsieur Daverny!' cried she in a stifled voice. "'Help! Help!' Barois turned round and with a great effort stumbled a few steps then fell at the feet of Noirtier, and resting his hand on the knee of the invalid, exclaimed, "'My master! My good master!' At this moment, Monsieur de Villefort, attracted by the noise, appeared on the threshold. Morel relaxed his hold of Valentine, and retreating to a distant corner of the room, remained half hidden behind a curtain. Pale as if he had been gazing on a serpent, he fixed his terrified eye on the agonized sufferer. Noirtier, burning with impatience and terror, was in despair at his utter inability to help his old domestic, whom he regarded more in the light of a friend than a servant. One might be the fearful swelling of the veins of his forehead, and the contraction of the muscles around the eye trace the terrible conflict which was going on between the living, energetic mind and the inanimate and helpless body. Barois, his features convulsed, his eyes, suffused with blood, and his head thrown back, was lying at full length, 
beating the floor with his hands while his legs had become so stiff that they looked as if they would break rather than bend a slight appearance of foam was visible around the mouth and he breathed painfully and with extreme difficulty villefort seemed stupefied with astonishment and remained gazing intently on the scene before him without uttering a word he had not seen morel after a moment of dumb contemplation during which his face became pale and his hair seemed to stand on end he sprang toward the door crying out doctor doctor come instantly pray come madame madame cried valentine calling her stepmother and running upstairs to meet her come quick quick and bring your bottle of smelling salts with you what is the matter said madame de villefort in a harsh and constrained tone oh come come but where is the doctor exclaimed villefort where is he madame de villefort now deliberately descended the staircase in one hand she held her handkerchief with which she appeared to be wiping her face and in the other a bottle of english smelling salts her first look on entering the room was at noirtier whose face independent of the emotion which such a scene could not fail of producing proclaimed him to be in possession of his usual health her second glance was at the dying man she turned pale and her eye passed quickly from the servant and rested on the master in the name of heaven madame said villefort where is the doctor he was with you just now you see this a fit of apoplexy and he might be saved if he could be but bled has he eaten anything lately asked madame de villefort eluding her husband's question madame replied valentine he has not even breakfasted he has been running very fast on an errand with which my grandfather charged him and when he returned took nothing but a glass of lemonade ah said madame de villefort why did he not take wine lemonade was a very bad thing for him grandpapa's bottle of lemonade was standing just by his side poor barois was very thirsty and was thankful to drink anything he could find madame de villefort started noirtier looked at her with a glance of the most profound scrutiny he was such a short neck said she madame said villefort i ask where is monsieur d'avigny in god's name answer me he is with edward who is not quite well replied madame de villefort no longer being able to avoid answering villefort rushed upstairs to fetch him take this said madame de villefort giving her smelling bottle to valentine they will no doubt bleed him therefore i will retire for i cannot endure the sight of blood and she followed her husband upstairs morel now emerged from his hiding-place where he had remained quite unperceived so great had been the general confusion go away as quick as you can maximilian said valentine and stay till i send for you go morel looked towards noirtier for permission to retire the old man who had preserved all his usual coolness made a sign to him to do so the young man pressed valentine's hand to his lips then left the house by a back staircase at the same moment that he quitted the room villefort and the doctor entered by an opposite door 
Barrois was now showing signs of returning consciousness. The crisis seemed past. A low moaning was heard, and he raised himself on one knee. D'Avrigny and Villefort laid him on a couch. "'What do you prescribe, doctor?' demanded Villefort. "'Give me some water and ether. You have some in the house, have you not?' "'Yes.' "'Send for some oil of turpentine and tartar emetic.' Villefort immediately dispatched a messenger. "'And now let everyone retire.' "'Must I go too?' asked Valentine timidly. "'Yes, mademoiselle, you especially,' replied the doctor abruptly. Valentine looked at Monsieur d'Avrigny with astonishment, kissed her grandfather on the forehead, and left the room. The doctor closed the door after her with a gloomy air. "'Look, look, doctor,' said Villefort. "'He is quite coming round again. I really do not think, after all, it is anything of consequence.' Monsieur d'Avrigny answered by a melancholy smile. "'How do you feel, Barrois?' asked he. "'A little better, sir.' "'Will you drink some of this ether and water?' "'I will try, but don't touch me.' "'Why not?' "'Because I feel that if you were only to touch me with the tip of your finger, the fit would return.' "'Drink.' Barrois took the glass, and raising it to his purple lips, took about half of the liquid offered him. "'Where do you suffer?' asked the doctor. "'Everywhere. I feel cramps over my whole body.' Do you find any dazzling sensation before the eyes? Yes. Any noise in the ears? Frightful. When did you first feel that? Just now. Suddenly? Yes, like a clap of thunder. Did you feel nothing of it yesterday or the day before? Nothing. No drowsiness? None. What have you eaten today? I have eaten nothing. I only drank a glass of my master's lemonade, that's all. And Barrois turned towards Nortier, who, immovably fixed in his armchair, was contemplating this terrible scene without allowing a word or a movement to escape him. Where is this lemonade? asked the doctor eagerly. Downstairs, in the decanter. Whereabouts downstairs? In the kitchen. Shall I go and fetch it, doctor? inquired Villefort. No, stay here and try to make Barrois drink the rest of this glass of ether and water. I will go myself and fetch the lemonade. D'Avrigny bounded towards the door, flew down the back staircase, and almost knocked down Madame de Villefort in his haste, who was herself going down to the kitchen. She cried out, but D'Avrigny paid no attention to her, possessed with but one idea— he cleared the last four steps with a bound, and rushed into the kitchen, where he saw the decanter about three parts empty still standing on the waiter where it had been left. He darted upon it as an eagle would seize upon its prey, panting with loss of breath. He returned to the room he had just left. Madame de Villefort was slowly ascending the steps which led to her room. "'Is this the decanter you spoke of?' asked d'Avrigny. "'Yes, doctor. Is this the same lemonade of which you partook?' "'I believe so. What did it taste like?' "'It had a bitter taste.' The doctor poured some drops of the lemonade into the palm of his hand, 
put his lips to it, and after having rinsed his mouth as a man does when he is tasting wine, he spat the liquor into the fireplace. "'It is no doubt the same,' said he. "'Did you drink some too, Monsieur Noirtier?' "'Yes.' "'And did you also discover a bitter taste?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, doctor,' cried Barrois, "'the fit is coming on again. "'Oh, do something for me!' The doctor flew to his patient. "'That emetic, Villefort, see if it is coming.' Villefort sprang into the passage, exclaiming, "'The emetic! The emetic! Is it come yet?' No one answered. The most profound terror reigned throughout the house. "'If I had anything by means of which I could inflate the lungs,' said d'Avrigny, looking around him, "'perhaps I might prevent suffocation. But there is nothing which would do, nothing.' "'Oh, sir!' cried Barrois. "'Are you going to let me die without help? Oh, I am dying! Oh, save me!' "'A pen, a pen,' said the doctor. There was one lying on the table. He endeavoured to introduce it into the mouth of the patient, who in the midst of his convulsions was making vain attempts to vomit, but the jaws were so clinched that the pen could not pass them. This second attack was much more violent than the first, and he had slipped from the couch to the ground where he was writhing in agony. The doctor left him in his paroxysm, knowing that he could do nothing to alleviate it, and going up to Noirtier, said abruptly, "'How do you find yourself?' well yes have you any weight on the chest or does your stomach feel light and comfortable eh? yes then you feel pretty much as you generally do after you have had the dose which i am accustomed to give you every sunday yes did barois make your lemonade yes was it you who asked him to drink some of it no was it monsieur de villefort no madame no it was your granddaughter then was it not yes a groan from barrois accompanied by a yawn which seemed to crack the very jawbones attracted the attention of monsieur d'avrigny he left monsieur noirtier and returned to the sick man barrois said the doctor can you speak barrois muttered a few unintelligible words try and make an effort to do so my good man said d'Avrigny. Barrois reopened his bloodshot eyes. "'Who made the lemonade?' "'I did.' "'Did you bring it to your master directly? It was made.' "'No.' "'You left it somewhere, then, in the meantime?' "'Yes. I left it in the pantry, because I was called away.' "'Who brought it into the room, then?' "'Mademoiselle Valentine.' D'Avrigny struck his forehead with his hand. "'Gracious heaven!' exclaimed he. "'Doctor! Doctor!' cried Barrois, who felt another fit coming. "'Will they never bring that emetic?' asked the doctor. "'Here is a glass with one already prepared,' said Villefort, entering the room. "'Who prepared it?' "'The chemist who came here with me.' "'Drink it,' said the doctor to Barrois. "'Impossible, doctor!' it is too late my throat is closing up i am choking oh my heart oh my head oh what agony shall i suffer like this long no no friend replied the doctor 
you will soon cease to suffer. Oh, I understand you, said the unhappy man. My God, have mercy upon me. And uttering a fearful cry, Barrois fell back as if he had been struck by lightning. D'Avrigny put his hand to his heart and placed a glass before his lips. Well, said Villefort, go to the kitchen and get me some syrup of violets. Villefort went immediately. Do not be alarmed, Monsieur Noirtier, said D'Avrigny. I am going to take my patient into the next room to bleed him. This sort of attack is very frightful to witness. And taking Barrois under the arms, he dragged him into an adjoining room, but almost immediately he returned to fetch the lemonade. Noirtier closed his right eye. You want Valentine, do you not? I will tell them to send her to you. Villefort returned, and d'Avrigny met him in the passage. Well, how is he now? asked he. Come in here, said d'Avrigny, and he took him into the chamber where the sick man lay. Is he still in a fit? said the procureur. He is dead. Villefort drew back a few steps, and clasping his hands, exclaimed with real amazement and sympathy, Dead? And so soon, too? Yes, it is very soon, said the doctor, looking at the corpse before him. But that ought not to astonish you. Monsieur and Madame de Saint-Méran died as soon. People die very suddenly in your house, Monsieur Villefort. What? cried the magistrate with an accent of horror and consternation. Are you still harping on this terrible idea? Still, sir, and I shall always do so, replied d'Avrigny, for it has never for one instant ceased to retain possession of my mind, and that you may be quite sure I am not mistaken this time. Listen well to what I am going to say, Monsieur de Villefort. The magistrate trembled convulsively. There is a poison which destroys life almost without leaving any perceptible traces. I know it well. I have studied it in all its forms and in the effects which it produces. I recognize the presence of this poison in the case of Paul Barrois as well as in that of Madame de Saint-Méran. There is a way of detecting its presence. It restores the blue color of litmus paper reddened by an acid, and it turns syrup of violets green. We have no litmus paper, but see, here, they come with the syrup of violets. The doctor was right. Steps were heard in the passage. Monsieur d'Avrigny opened the door, and took from the hands of the chambermaid a cup which contained two or three spoonfuls of the syrup. He then carefully closed the door. "'Look,' said he to the procureur, whose heart beat so loudly that it might almost be heard. "'Here is in this cup some syrup of violets, and this decanter contains the remainder of the lemonade of which Monsieur Noitier and Barrois partook. If the lemonade be pure and inoffensive, the syrup will retain its colour. If, on the contrary, the lemonade be drugged with poison, the syrup will become green. Look closely.' The doctor then slowly poured some drops of the lemonade from the decanter into the cup, and in an instant a light cloudy sediment began to form at the bottom of the cup. This sediment first took a blue shade, 
then from the colour of sapphire it passed to that of opal, and from opal to emerald. Arrived at this last hue, it changed no more. The result of the experiment left no doubt whatever on the mind. "'The unfortunate Barrois has been poisoned,' said d'Avrigny, "'and I will maintain this assertion before God and man.' Villefort said nothing, but he clasped his hands, opened his haggard eyes, and, overcome with his emotion, sank into a chair. End of chapter 79Chapter 80 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 80 The Accusation. Monsieur d'Avrigny soon restored the magistrate to consciousness, who had looked like a second corpse in that chamber of death. Oh, death is in my house, cried Villefort. Say rather crime replied the doctor. "'Monsieur d'Avrigny,' cried Villefort, "'I cannot tell you all I feel at this moment. Terror, grief, madness.' "'Yes,' said Monsieur d'Avrigny, with an imposing calmness, "'but I think it is now time to act. I think it is time to stop this torrent of mortality. I can no longer bear to be in possession of these secrets without the hope of seeing the victims and society generally revenged.' Villefort cast a gloomy look around him. "'In my house!' murmured he. "'In my house!' "'Come, magistrate,' said Monsieur d'Avrigny. "'Show yourself a man. As an interpreter of the law, do honour to your profession by sacrificing your selfish interest to it.' "'You make me shudder, doctor. Do you talk of a sacrifice?' "'I do.' "'Do you, then, suspect any one?' "'I suspect no one. "'Death raps at your door. "'It enters, it goes, "'not blindfolded, but circumspectly from room to room. "'Well, I follow its course. "'I track its passage. "'I adopt the wisdom of the ancients "'and feel my way for my friendship for your family "'and my respect for you as a twofold bandage over my eyes. "'Well... "'Oh, speak, speak, doctor, I shall have courage.' "'Well, sir, you have in your establishment, or in your family, "'perhaps one of the frightful monstrosities of which each century produces only one. "'Locusta and Agrippina, living at the same time, were an exception, "'and proved the determination of Providence to effect the entire ruin of the Roman Empire, "'sullied by so many crimes.' Brunhilde and Fredegonde were the results of the painful struggle of civilization in its infancy, when man was learning to control mind, were it even by an emissary from the realms of darkness. All these women have been, or were, beautiful. The same flower of innocence had flourished, or was still flourishing on their brow, that is seen on the brow of the culprit in your house." Villefort shrieked, clasped his hands, and looked at the doctor with a supplicating air. But the latter went on without pity. "'Seek whom the crime will profit,' says an axiom of jurisprudence. "'Doctor!' cried Villefort. "'Alas! Doctor! 
how often has man's justice been deceived by those fatal words? I know not why, but I feel that this crime... You acknowledge, then, the existence of the crime? Yes, I see too plainly that it does exist, but it seems that it is intended to affect me personally. I fear an attack myself after all these disasters. Oh, man, murmured d'Avrigny, the most selfish of all animals, the most personal of all creatures, who believes the earth turns, the sun shines, and death strikes for him alone. An ant cursing God from the top of a blade of grass, and have those who have lost their lives lost nothing? Monsieur de Saint-Méran? Madame de Saint-Méran? Monsieur Noirtier? How? Monsieur Noirtier? Yes. Think you it was the poor servant's life was coveted? No, no, like Shakespeare's Polonius, he died for another. It was Noirtier the lemonade was intended for. It is Noirtier, logically speaking, who drank it. The other drank it only by accident. And although Barrois is dead, it was Noirtier whose death was wished for. But why did it not kill my father? I told you one evening in the garden after Madame de Saint-Méran's death, because his system is accustomed to that very poison, and the dose was trifling to him, which would be fatal to another, because no one knows, not even the assassin, that for the last twelve months I have given Monsieur Noirtier Broussine for his paralytic affection, while the assassin is not ignorant, for he has proved that Broussine is a violent poison. Oh, have pity, have pity, murmured Villefort, wringing his hands. Follow the culprit's steps. He first kills Monsieur de Saint-Méran. Oh, doctor, I would swear to it. What I heard of his symptoms agrees too well with what I have seen in the other cases. Villefort ceased to contend. He only groaned. He first kills Monsieur de Saint-Méran, repeated the doctor. Then Madame de Saint-Méran? A double fortune to inherit? Villefort wiped the perspiration from his forehead. Listen attentively. Uh, alas, stammered Villefort, I, I do not lose a single word. Monsieur Noirtier, resumed Monsieur d'Avrigny in the same pitiless tone, Monsieur Noirtier had once made a will against you, against your family, in favour of the poor, in fact. Monsieur Noirtier is spared because nothing is expected from him. But he has no sooner destroyed his first will and made a second, than, for fear he should make a third, he is struck down. The will was made the day before yesterday, I believe. You see, there has been no time lost. Oh, merci, Monsieur d'Avrigny! No mercy, sir. The physician has a sacred mission on earth, and to fulfil it, he begins at the source of life and goes down to the mysterious darkness of the tomb. When crime has been committed, and God, doubtless in anger, turns away his face, it is for the physician to bring the culprit to justice. "'Have mercy on my child, sir,' murmured Villefort. "'You see it is yourself who have first named her. You, her father.' "'Have pity on Valentine.' "'Listen, it is impossible. I would as willingly accuse myself. Valentine, whose heart is pure as a diamond or a lily.' "'No pity, procureur. 
The crime is fragrant. Mademoiselle herself packed all the medicines which were sent to Monsieur de Saint-Méran, and Monsieur de Saint-Méran is dead. Mademoiselle de Villefort prepared all the cooling draughts which Madame de Saint-Méran took, and Madame de Saint-Méran is dead. Mademoiselle de Villefort took from the hands of Barrois, who was sent out, the lemonade which Monsieur Noirtier had every morning, and he has escaped by a miracle. Mademoiselle de Villefort is the culprit. She is the poisoner. To you, as the king's attorney, I denounce Mademoiselle de Villefort. Do your duty. Doctor, I resist no longer. I can no longer defend myself. I believe you, but for pity's sake, spare my life, my honor. Monsieur de Villefort, replied the doctor with increased vehemence, there are occasions when I dispense with all foolish human circumspection. If your daughter had committed only one crime, and I saw her meditating another, I would say, warn her, punish her, let her pass the remainder of her life in a convent, weeping and praying. If she had committed two crimes, I would say, here, Monsieur de Villefort, is a poison that the prisoner is not acquainted with, one that has no known antidote. Quick as thought, rapid as lightning, mortal as the thunderbolt, give her that poison, recommending her soul to God, and save your honour and your life, for it is yours she aims at. And I can picture her approaching your pillow, with her hypocritical smiles and her sweet exhortations. Woe to you, Monsieur de Villefort, if you do not strike first. That is what I would say, had she only killed two persons, but she has seen three deaths has contemplated three murdered persons, has knelt by three corpses. To the scaffold with the poisoner, to the scaffold. Do you talk of your honour? Do what I tell you, and immortality awaits you. Villefort fell on his knees. Listen, said he, I have not the strength of mind you have, or rather that which you would not have if instead of my daughter Valentine, your daughter Madeleine were concerned. The doctor turned pale. Doctor, every son of woman is born to suffer and to die. I am content to suffer and to await death. Beware, said Monsieur d'Avrigny. It may come slowly. You will see it approach after having struck your father, your wife, perhaps your son. Villefort, suffocating, pressed the doctor's arm. "'Listen,' cried he, "'pity me, help me. "'No, my daughter is not guilty. "'If you drag us both before a tribunal, "'I will still say, "'No, my daughter is not guilty. "'There is no crime in my house. "'I will not acknowledge a crime in my house, "'for when crime enters a dwelling, "'it is like death. "'It does not come alone. "'Listen.' What does it signify to you if I am murdered? Are you my friend? Are you a man? Have you a heart? No, you are a physician. Well, I tell you, I will not drag my daughter before a tribunal and give her up to the executioner. Would drive me like a madman to dig my heart out with my fingernails. And if you were mistaken, doctor, if it were not my daughter, if I should come one day, pale as a spectre, and say to you, Assassin! You have killed my child. 
Hold, if that should happen, although I am a Christian, Monsieur d'Avrigny, I should kill myself. Well, said the doctor, after a moment's silence, I will wait. Villefort looked at him as if he had doubted his words. Only, continued Monsieur d'Avrigny, with a slow and solemn tone, if anyone falls ill in your house, if you feel yourself attacked, do not send for me, for I will come no more. I will consent to share this dreadful secret with you, but I will not allow shame and remorse to grow and increase in my conscience, as crime and misery will in your house. Then you abandon me, doctor? Yes, for I can follow you no farther, and I only stop at the foot of the scaffold. Some further discovery will be made, which will bring this dreadful tragedy to a close. Adieu. I entreat you, doctor. All the horrors that disturb my thoughts make your house odious and fatal. Adieu, sir. One word, one single word more, doctor. You go, leaving me in all the horror of my situation, after increasing it by what you have revealed to me. But what will be reported of the sudden death of the poor old servant? True, said Monsieur d'Avrigny. We will return. The doctor went out first, followed by Monsieur de Villefort. The terrified servants were on the stairs and in the passage where the doctor would pass. Sir, said d'Avrigny to Villefort, so loud that all might hear, poor Barrois has led too sedentary a life of late. Accustomed formerly to ride on horseback or in the carriage to the four corners of Europe, the monotonous walk around that armchair has killed him. His blood has thickened. He was stout, had a short, thick neck. He was attacked with apoplexy, and I was called in too late. By the way, added he in a low tone, take care to throw away that cup of syrup of violets in the ashes. The doctor, without shaking hands with Villefort, without adding a word to what he had said, went out, amid the tears and lamentations of the whole household. The same evening all Villefort's servants, who had assembled in the kitchen and had a long consultation, came to tell Madame de Villefort that they wished to leave. No entreaty, no proposition of increased wages, could induce them to remain. To every argument they replied, "'We must go, for death is in this house.' They all left, in spite of prayers and entreaties, testifying their regret at leaving so good a master and mistress, and especially Mademoiselle Valentine, so good, so kind, and so gentle. Villefort looked at Valentine as they said this. She was in tears, and, strange as it was, in spite of the emotions he felt at the sight of these tears, he looked also at Madame de Villefort and it appeared to him as if a slight, gloomy smile had passed over her thin lips, like a meteor seen passing inauspiciously between two clouds in a stormy sky. End of chapter 80「by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 81. The Room 
of the retired baker. The evening of the day on which the Count of Morcerf had left Donglar's house with feelings of shame and anger at the rejection of the projected alliance, Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti, with curled hair, moustaches in perfect order, and white gloves which fitted admirably, had entered the courtyard of the banker's house in La Chaussée d'Antin. He had not been more than ten minutes in the drawing-room before he drew Donglar aside into the recess of a bow-window, and, after an ingenious preamble, related to him all his anxieties and cares since his noble father's departure. He acknowledged the extreme kindness which had been shown him by the banker's family, in which he had been received as a son, and where, besides his warmest affections, had found an object on which to centre in Mademoiselle Donglar. Donglar listened with the most profound attention. He had expected this declaration for the last two or three days, and when at last it came his eyes glistened as much as they had lowered on listening to Morcerf. He would not, however, yield immediately to the young man's request, but made a few conscientious objections. "'Are you not rather young, Monsieur Andrea, to think of marrying?' "'I think not, sir,' replied Monsieur Cavalcanti. "'In Italy the nobility generally marry young. A life is so uncertain that we ought to secure happiness while it is within our reach.' "'Well, sir,' said Donglar, in case your proposals, which do me honour, are accepted by my wife and daughter, by whom shall the preliminary arrangements be settled? So important a negotiation should, I think, be conducted by the respective fathers of the young people. Sir, my father is a man of great foresight and prudence. Thinking that I might wish to settle in France, he left me at his departure together with the papers establishing my identity, a letter promising, if he approved of my choice, one hundred and fifty thousand livres per annum from the day I was married. So far as I can judge, I suppose this to be a quarter of my father's revenue. I, said Donglar, have always intended giving my daughter five hundred thousand francs as her dowry. She is besides my sole heiress. All would then be easily arranged if the baroness and her daughter are willing. We should command an annuity of one hundred and seventy-five thousand livres. Supposing also I should persuade the Marquis to give me my capital, which is not likely, but still is possible, we would place these two or three million in your hands, whose talent might make it realize ten per cent. I never give more than four per cent, and generally only three and a half. But to my son-in-law I would give five, and we would share the profit. "'Very good, father-in-law,' said Cavalcanti, yielding to his low-born nature which would escape sometimes through the aristocratic gloss with which he sought to conceal it. Correcting himself immediately, he said, "'Excuse me, sir. Hope alone makes me almost mad. What will not reality do?' "'But,' said Donglar, who on his heart did not perceive how soon the conversation which was at first disinterested was turning to a business transaction. "'There is doubtless a part of your fortune your father could not refuse you.' "'Which?' asked the young man. "'That you inherit from your mother.' "'Truly from my mother, Leonora Cosinari.' "'How much may it amount to?' "'Indeed, sir.' 
said andrea i assure you i have never given the subject a thought but i supposed it must have been at least two millions Danglars felt as much overcome with joy as the miser who finds a lost treasure or as the shipwrecked mariner who feels himself on solid ground instead of in the abyss which he expected would swallow him up well sir said andrea bowing to the banker respectfully may i hope you may not only hope said Danglars, but consider it a settled thing if no obstacle arises on your part i am indeed rejoiced said andrea but said Danglars thoughtfully how is it that your patron monsieur de monte cristo did not make his proposal for you andrea blushed imperceptibly i have just left the count sir said he he is doubtless a delightful man but inconceivably peculiar in his ideas he esteems me highly he even told me he had not the slightest doubt that my father would give me the capital instead of the interest of my property he has promised to use his influence to obtain it for me but he also declared that he never had taken on himself the responsibility of making proposals for another and he never would i must however do him the justice to add that he assured me if ever he had regretted the repugnance he felt to such a step it was on this occasion because he thought the projected union would be a happy and a suitable one besides if he will do nothing officially he will answer any questions you propose to him and now continued he with one of his most charming smiles having finished talking to the father-in-law i must address myself to the banker and what may you have to say to him said Danglars, laughing in his turn that the day after to-morrow i shall have to draw upon you for about four thousand francs but the count expecting my bachelor's revenue could not suffice for the coming month's outlay has offered me a draft for twenty thousand francs it bears his signature as you see which is all sufficient bring me a million such as that said Danglars. i shall be well pleased putting the draft in his pocket fix your own hour for to-morrow and my cashier shall call on you with a cheque for eighty thousand francs at ten o'clock then if you please i should like it early as i am going into the country to-morrow very well at ten o'clock you are still at the hotel des princes yes the following morning with the banker's usual punctuality the eighty thousand francs were placed in the young man's hands as he was on the point of starting after having left two hundred francs for caderousse he went out chiefly to avoid this dangerous enemy and returned as late as possible in the evening but scarcely had he stepped out of his carriage when the porter met him with a parcel in his hand sir said he that man has been here what man said andrea carelessly apparently forgetting him whom he but too well recollected him to whom your excellency pays that little annuity oh said andrea my father's old servant well you gave him the two hundred francs i had left for him yes your excellency andrea had expressed a wish to be thus addressed but continued the porter he would not take them andrea turned pale 
but as it was dark his pallor was not perceptible what he would not take them said he with slight emotion no he wished to speak to your excellency i told him you were gone out and after some dispute he believed me and gave me this letter which he had brought with him already sealed give it to me said andrea and he read by the light of his carriage lamp you know where i live i expect you tomorrow morning at nine o'clock andrea examined it carefully to ascertain if the letter had been opened or if any indiscreet eyes had seen its contents but it was so carefully folded that no one could have read it and the seal was perfect very well said he poor man he is a worthy creature he left the porter to ponder on these words not knowing which most to admire the master or the servant take out the horses quickly and come up to me said andrea to his groom in two seconds the young man had reached his room and burnt caderousse's letter the servant entered just as he had finished you are about my height pierre said he i have that honor your excellency you have a new livery yesterday yes sir i have an engagement with a pretty little girl for this evening and do not wish to be known lend me your livery till to-morrow i may sleep perhaps at an inn pierre obeyed five minutes after andrea left the hotel completely disguised took a cabriolet and ordered the driver to take him to the cheval rouge at picpus the next morning he left that inn as he had left the hotel des princes without being noticed walked down the faubourg saint antoine along the boulevard to rue menilmontant and stopped at the door of the third house on the left looking for some one of whom to make inquiry in the porter's absence for whom are you looking my fine fellow asked the fruiteress on the opposite side monsieur payatin if you please my good woman replied andrea a retired baker asked the fruiteress exactly he lives at the end of the yard on the left on the third story andrea went as she directed him and on the third floor he found a hare's paw which by the hasty ringing of the bell it was evident he pulled with considerable ill-temper a moment after caderousse's face appeared at the grating in the door ah you are punctual said he as he drew back the door confound you and your punctuality said andrea throwing himself into a chair in a manner which implied that he would rather have flung it at the head of his host come come my little fellow don't be angry see i have thought about you look at the good breakfast we are going to have nothing but what you are fond of andrea indeed inhaled the scent of something cooking which was not unwelcome to him hungry as he was it was that mixture of fat and garlic peculiar to provincial kitchens of an inferior order added to that of dried fish and above all the pungent smell of musk and cloves these odors escaped from two deep dishes which were covered and placed on a stove and from a copper pan placed in an old iron pot in an adjoining room andrea saw also a tolerably clean table prepared for two two bottles of wine sealed the one with green the other with yellow a supply of brandy in a decanter and a measure of fruit in a cabbage leaf cleverly arranged on an earthenware plate what do you think of it my little fellow said caderousse 
Ah, that smells good. You know I used to be a famous cook. Do you recollect how you used to lick your fingers? You are among the first who tasted any of my dishes, and I think you relish them tolerably. While speaking, Caderousse went on peeling a fresh supply of onions. But, said Andrea ill-temperedly, by my faith, if it was only to breakfast with you that you disturbed me, I wish the devil had taken you. My boy, said Caderousse sententiously, one can talk while eating, and then, you ungrateful being, you are not pleased to see an old friend? I am weeping with joy. He was truly crying, but it would have been difficult to say whether joy or the onions produced the greatest effect on the lacrimal glands of the old innkeeper of the Pont du Gard. "'Hold your tongue, you hypocrite,' said Andrea. "'You love me?' "'Yes, I do, or make the devil take me. I know it is a weakness,' said Caderousse, "'but it overpowers me. And yet it has not prevented your sending for me to play me some trick.' "'Come,' said Caderousse, wiping his large knife on his apron. "'If I do not like you, do you think I should endure the wretched life you lead me? "'Think for a moment. You have your servant's clothes on. You therefore keep a servant. "'I have none, and am obliged to prepare my own meals. "'You abuse my cookery because you dine at the table d'hôte of the Hôtel des Princes or the Café de Paris. "'Well, I too could keep a servant. I too could have a tilbury.' I too could dine where I like, but why do I not? Because I would not annoy my little Benedetto. Come, just acknowledge that I could, eh? This address was accompanied by a look which was by no means difficult to understand. Well, said Andrea, admitting your love, why do you want me to breakfast with you? That I may have the pleasure of seeing you, my little fellow. "'What is the use of seeing me after we have made all our arrangements?' "'Hey, dear friend,' said Caderousse, "'are wills ever made without codicils? "'But you first came to breakfast, did you not? "'Well, sit down and let us begin with these pilchards "'and this fresh butter, "'which I have put on some vine leaves to please you, wicked one. "'Ah, yes, you look at my room, "'my four straw chairs, my image, three francs each.' "'But what do you expect? This is not the Hôtel des Princes.' "'Come, you are growing discontented. You are no longer happy. "'You, who only wish to live like a retired baker.' Caderousse sighed. "'Well, what have you to say? You have seen your dream realized.' "'I can still say it is a dream. A retired baker, my poor Benedetto, is rich. He has an annuity.' "'Well, you have an annuity.' "'I have?' "'Yes, since I bring you your two hundred francs.' Caderousse shrugged his shoulders. "'It is humiliating,' said he, "'thus to receive money given grudgingly, "'an uncertain supply which may soon fail. "'You see, I am obliged to economize, "'in case your prosperity should cease. "'Well, my friend, fortune is inconstant.' As the chaplain of the regiment said, I know your prosperity is great, you rascal. You are to marry the daughter of Donglar. What? Of Donglar? Yes, to be sure. Must I say Baron Donglar? I might as well say Count Benedetto. He was an old friend of mine, and if he had not so bad a memory, he ought to invite me to your wedding, 
seeing he came to mine. Yes, yes, to mine. God, he was not so proud then. He was an underclerk to the good Monsieur Morel. I have dined many times with him and the Count of Morcerf. So you see, I have some high connections, and were I to cultivate them a little, we might meet in the same drawing-rooms. Come, your jealousy represents everything to you in the wrong light. That is all very fine, Benedetto mio, but I know what I am saying. Perhaps I may one day put on my best coat, and, presenting myself at the great gate, introduce myself. Meanwhile, let us sit down and eat. Caderousse set the example and attacked the breakfast with good appetite, praising each dish he set before his visitor. The latter seemed to have resigned himself. He drew the corks and partook largely of the fish with the garlic and fat. "'Ah, mate,' said Caderousse, "'you are getting on better terms with your old landlord.' "'Faith, yes,' replied Andrea, whose hunger prevailed over every other feeling. "'So you like it, you rogue?' "'So much that I wonder how a man who can cook thus can complain of hard living.' "'Do you see?' said Caderousse. "'All my happiness is marred by one thought.' "'What is that?' "'That I am dependent on another. "'I who have always gained my own livelihood honestly.' "'Do not let that disturb you. "'I have enough for two. "'No, truly, uh, you may believe me if you will.' At the end of every month I am tormented by remorse. Good Caderousse! So much so that yesterday I would not take the two hundred francs. Yes, you wish to speak to me. But was it indeed remorse? Tell me. True remorse, and besides, an idea had struck me. Andrea shuddered. He always did so at Caderousse's ideas. It is miserable, do you see? "'Always to wait till the end of the month.' "'Oh,' said Andrea philosophically, determined to watch his companion narrowly. "'Does not life pass in waiting? Do I, for instance, fare better? "'Well, I wait patiently, do I not?' "'Yes, because instead of expecting two hundred wretched francs, "'you expect five or six thousand, perhaps ten, perhaps even twelve, "'for you take care not to let anyone know the utmost.' Down there, you always had little presents and Christmas boxes which you tried to hide from your poor friend Caderousse. Fortunately, he is a cunning fellow, that friend Caderousse. There, you are beginning again to ramble, to talk again and again of the past. But what is the use of teasing me with going all over that again? Ah, you are only one and twenty and can forget the past. I am fifty and am obliged to recollect it. "'But let us return to business.' "'Yes.' "'I was going to say, if I were in your place.' "'Well?' "'I would realize. "'How would you realize? "'I would ask for six months in advance, "'under pretense of being able to purchase a farm. "'Then with my six months I would decamp.' "'Well, well,' said Andrea. "'That isn't a bad idea.' "'My dear friend,' said Caderousse, Eat of my bread and take my advice. You'll be none the worse off, physically or morally. But, said Andrea, why do you not act on the advice you gave me? Why do you not realize a six months, a year's advance even, and retire to Brussels, instead of leaving the retired baker, 
you might live as a bankrupt using his privileges that would be very good but how the devil would you have me retire on twelve hundred francs ah caderousse said andrea how covetous you are two months ago you were dying with hunger the appetite grows by what it feeds on said caderousse grinning and showing his teeth like a monkey laughing or a tiger growling and added he biting off with his large white teeth an enormous mouthful of bread i have formed a plan caderousse's plans alarmed andrea still more than his ideas ideas were but the germ the plan was reality let me see your plan i dare say it is a pretty one why not who formed the plan by which we left the establishment of eh was it not i and was no bad one i believe sincere we are i do not say replied andrea that you never make a good one but let us see your plan well pursued caderousse can you without expending one sou put me in the way of getting fifteen thousand francs no fifteen thousand are not enough i cannot again become an honest man with less than thirty thousand francs no replied andrea dryly no i cannot i do not think you understand me replied caderousse calmly i said without your laying out a sou do you want me to commit a robbery to spoil all my good fortune and yours with mine and both of us to be dragged down there again it would make very little difference to me said caderousse if i were retaken i am a poor creature to live alone and sometimes pine for my old comrades not like you heartless creature who would be glad never to see them again andrea did more than tremble this time he turned pale come caderousse no nonsense said he don't alarm yourself my little benedetto but just point out to me some means of gaining those thirty thousand francs without your assistance and i will contrive it well i'll see i'll try to contrive some way said andrea meanwhile you raise my monthly allowance to five hundred francs my little fellow i have a fancy and mean to get a housekeeper well you shall have your five hundred francs said andrea but it is very hard for me my poor caderousse if you take advantage bah said caderousse when you have access to countless stores one would have said andre anticipated his companion's words so did his eye flash like lightning but it was but for a moment true he replied and my protector is very kind that dear protector said caderousse and how much does he give you monthly five thousand francs as many thousands as you give me hundreds truly it is only bastards who are thus fortunate five thousand francs per month what the devil can you do with all that oh it is no trouble to spend that and i'm like you i want capital capital yes i understand everyone would like capital well and i shall get it who will give it to you your prince yes my prince but unfortunately i must wait you must wait for what asked caderousse for his death the death of your prince yes how so because he has made his will in my favor indeed 
On my honour. For how much? For five hundred thousand. Only that? It's little enough. But so it is. No, it cannot be. Are you my friend, Caderousse? Yes, in life or death. Well, I will tell you a secret. What is it? But remember. Ah, pardieu, mute as a carp. Well, I think. Andrea stopped and looked around. You think? Do not fear, pardieu, we are alone. I think I have discovered my father. Your true father? Yes. Not old Cavalcanti? No, for he has gone again. The true one, as you say. And what father is? Well, Caderousse, it is Monte Cristo. Ah. Yes, you understand that explains all. He cannot acknowledge me openly, it appears, but he does it through Monsieur Cavalcanti, and gives him fifty thousand francs for it. Fifty thousand francs for being your father? I would have done it for half that, for twenty thousand, for fifteen thousand. Why did you not think of me, ungrateful man? Did I know anything about it, when it was all done when I was down there? Ah, truly, and you say that by his will he leaves me five hundred thousand livres. Are you sure of it? He showed it to me, but that is not all. There is a codicil, as I said just now. Probably. And in that codicil he acknowledges me. Oh, the good father, the brave father, the very honest father, said Caderousse, twirling a plate in the air between his two hands. Now say if I conceal anything from you. No, and your confidence makes your honourable, in my opinion, and your princely father. Is he rich? Very rich? Yes, he is that. He does not himself know the amount of his fortune. Is it possible? It is evident enough to me, who am always at his house. The other day a banker's clerk brought him fifty thousand francs in a portfolio about the size of your plate. Yesterday his banker brought him a hundred thousand francs in gold. Caderousse was filled with wonder. The young man's words sounded to him like metal, and he thought he could hear the rushing of cascades of Louis. "'And you go into that house?' cried he briskly. "'When I like.' Caderousse was thoughtful for a moment. It was easy to perceive he was revolving some unfortunate idea in his mind. Then suddenly, "'How oh, I should like to see all that!' cried he. "'How beautiful it must be!' "'It is, in fact, magnificent,' said Andrea. "'And does he not live in the Champs-Élysées?' "'Yes, number thirty. "'Ah,' said Caderousse, "'numero trente. "'Yes, a fine house, standing alone, "'between a courtyard and a garden. "'You must know it.' "'Possibly, but it is not the exterior I care for, "'it is the interior.' "'What beautiful furniture there must be in it!' "'Have you ever seen the Tuileries?' "'No. Well, it surpasses that.' "'It must be worth one's while to stoop, Andrea, "'when that good Monsieur Monte Cristo lets fall his purse.' "'It is not worth while to wait for that,' said Andrea. "'Money is as plentiful in that house as fruit in an orchard.' "'But you should take me there one day with you.' "'How can I?' "'On what plea?' 
You are right, but you have made my mouth water. I must absolutely see it. I shall find a way. No nonsense, Caderousse. I will offer myself as floor polisher. The rooms are all carpeted. Well, then, I must be contented to imagine it. That is the best plan, believe me. Try at least to give me an idea of what it is. How can I? Nothing is easier. Is it large? Middling. How is it arranged? Faith, I should require pen, ink, and paper to make a plan. They are all here, said Caderousse briskly. He fetched from an old secretary a sheet of white paper and pen and ink. Here, said Caderousse, draw me all that on the paper, my boy. Andrea took the pen with an imperceptible smile and began. The house, as I said, is between the court and the garden. In this way, do you see? Andrea drew the garden, the court, and the house. High walls? Not more than eight or ten feet. That is not prudent, said Caderousse. In the court are orange trees in pots, turf, and clumps of flowers. And no steel traps? No. The stables? Are on either side of the gate, which you see there. And Andrea continued his plan. Let us see the ground floor, said Caderousse. On the ground floor, dining room, two drawing rooms, billiard rooms, staircase in the hall, and a little black staircase. Windows? Magnificent windows, so beautiful, so large, that I believe a man of your size should pass through each frame. Why the devil have they any stairs with such windows? Luxury has everything. But shutters? Yes, but they are never used. That Count of Monte Cristo is an original, who loves to look at the sky, even at night. And where do the servants sleep? Oh, they have a house to themselves. Picture to yourself a pretty coach-house at the right-hand side, where the ladders are kept. Well, over that coach-house are the servants' rooms, with bells corresponding with the different apartments. Ah, diable! Bells, did you say? What do you mean? Oh, nothing. I only say they cost a load of money to hang. And what is the use of them, I should like to know? There used to be a dog let loose in the yard at night. But it has been taken to the house at Auteuil. To that you went to, you know. Yes. I was saying to him only yesterday, You are imprudent, Monsieur Count, for when you go to Auteuil and take your servants, the house is left unprotected. Well, said he, what next? Well, next some day you will be robbed. What did he answer? He quietly said, What do I care if I am? Andrea, he has some secretary with a spring. How do you know? Yes, which catches the thief in a trap and plays a tune. I was told there was such at the last exhibition. He has a simple a mahogany secretary in which the key is always kept. And he is not robbed? No, his servants are all devoted to him. There ought to be some money in that secretary. There may be. No one knows what there is. And where is it? On the first floor. Sketch me the plan of that floor, as you have done of the ground floor, my boy. That is very simple. Andrea took the pen. On the first story, do you see, 
there is the anteroom and the drawing-room to the right of the drawing-room a library and a study to the left a bedroom and a dressing-room the famous secretary is in the dressing-room is there a window in the dressing-room two one here and one there andrea sketched two windows in the room which formed an angle on the plan and appeared as a small square added to the rectangle of the bedroom caderousse became thoughtful does he often go to a toy added he two or three times a week to-morrow for instance he is going to spend the day and night there are you sure of it he has invited me to dine there there's a life for you said caderousse a town-house and a country-house that is what it is to be rich and shall you dine there probably when you dine there do you sleep there if i like i am at home there caderousse looked at the young man as if to get at the truth from the bottom of his heart but andrea drew a cigar-case from his pocket took a havana quietly lit it and began smoking when do you want your twelve hundred francs said he to caderousse now if you have them andrea took five and twenty louis from his pocket yellow boys said caderousse no i thank you oh you despise them on the contrary i esteem them but will not have them you can change them idiot gold is worth five sous exactly and he who changes them will follow friend caderousse lay hands on him and demand what farmers pay him their rent in gold no nonsense my good fellow silver simply round coins with the head of some monarch or other on them anybody may possess a five-franc piece but do you suppose i carry five hundred francs about with me i should want a porter well leave them with your porter he is to be trusted i will call for them to-day no to-morrow i shall not have time to-day well to-morrow i will leave them when i go to auteuil may i depend on it certainly because i shall secure my housekeeper on the strength of it now see here will that be all and will you not torment me any more never caderousse had become so gloomy that andrea feared he should be obliged to notice the change he redoubled his gaiety and carelessness how sprightly you are said caderousse one would say you were already in possession of your property no unfortunately but when i do obtain it well i shall remember old friends i can tell you that yes since you have such a good memory what do you want it looks as if you are trying to fleece me i what an idea i who am going to give you another piece of good advice what is it to leave behind you the diamond you have on your finger we shall both get into trouble you will ruin both yourself and me by your folly how so said andrea how you put on a livery you disguise yourself as a servant and yet keep a diamond on your finger worth four or five thousand francs you guess well i know something of diamonds i have had some you do well to boast of it said andrea who without becoming angry as caderousse feared at this new extortion quietly resigned the ring 
Caderousse looked so closely at it that Andrea well knew that he was examining to see if all the edges were perfect. "'It is a false diamond,' said Caderousse. "'You are joking now,' replied Andrea. "'Do not be angry. We can try it.' Caderousse went to the window, touched the glass with it, and found it would cut. "'Confiture,' said Caderousse, putting the diamond on his little finger. "'I was mistaken.' but those thieves of jewellers imitate so well that it is no longer worthwhile to rob a jeweller's shop it is another branch of industry paralyzed have you finished said andrea do you want anything more will you have my waistcoat or my hat make free now you have begun no you are after all a good companion i will not detain you and will try to cure myself of my ambition but take care the same thing does not happen to you in selling the diamond you feared with the gold i shall not sell it do not fear not at least until the day after tomorrow thought the young man happy rogue said caderousse you are going to find your servants your horses your carriage and your betrothed yes said andrea well i hope you will make a handsome wedding present the day you marry mademoiselle Donglars. i have already told you it is a fancy you have taken in your head what fortune has she but i tell you a million andrea shrugged his shoulders let it be a million said caderousse you can never have so much as i wish you thank you said the young man oh i wish it to you with all my heart added caderousse with his hoarse laugh stop let me show you the way it is not worth while yes it is why because there is a little secret a precaution i thought it desirable to take one of ure efficet's locks revised and improved by gaspard caderousse i will manufacture you a similar one when you are a capitalist thank you said andrea i will let you know a week beforehand they parted caderousse remained on the landing until he had not only seen andrea go down the three stories but also across the court then he returned hastily shut his door carefully and began to study like a clever architect the plan andrea had left him dear benedetto said he i think he will not be sorry to inherit his fortune and he who hastens the day when he can touch his five hundred thousand will not be his worst friend end of chapter 81「二十三」「二十三」「二十三」「二十三」「This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 82 The Burglary The day following that on which the conversation we have related took place, the Count of Monte Cristo set out for Auteuil, accompanied by Ali and several attendants, and also taking with him some horses whose qualities he was desirous of ascertaining. He was induced to undertake this journey. Of which the day before he had not even thought and which had not occurred to andrea either by the arrival of bertuccio from normandy with intelligence respecting the house and sloop the house was ready and the sloop which had arrived a week before lay at anchor in a small creek with her crew of six men 
who had observed all the requisite formalities, and were ready again to put to sea. The Count praised Vettuccio's zeal, and ordered him to prepare for a speedy departure, as his stay in France would not be prolonged more than a month. "'Now,' said he, "'I may require to go in one night from Paris to Treport. Let eight fresh horses be in readiness on the road, which will enable me to go fifty leagues in ten hours.' "'Your Highness has already expressed that wish,' said Bertuccio. "'And the horses are ready. I have bought them, and stationed them myself at the most desirable posts, that is, in villages where no one generally stops.' "'That's well,' said Monte Cristo. "'I remain here a day or two. Arrange accordingly.' As Bertuccio was leaving the room to give the requisite orders, Baptistin opened the door. He held a letter on a silver waiter. "'What are you doing here?' asked the Count, seeing him covered with dust. "'I did not send for you, I think.' Baptistin, without answering, approached the Count and presented the letter. "'Important?' and urgent said he the count opened the letter and read monsieur de monte cristo is apprised that this night a man will enter his house in the champs elysees with the intention of carrying off some papers supposed to be in the secretary in the dressing-room the count's well-known courage will render unnecessary the aid of the police whose interference might seriously affect him who sends this advice the Count, by any opening from the bedroom, or by concealing himself in the dressing-room, would be able to defend his property himself. Many attendants, or apparent precautions, would prevent the villain from the attempt, and Monsieur de Monte Cristo would lose the opportunity of discovering an enemy whom chance has revealed to him, who now sends this warning to the Count, a warning he might not be able to send another time. If this first attempt should fail, and another be made. The Count's first idea was that this was an artifice, a gross deception to draw his attention from a minor danger in order to expose him to a greater. He was on the point of sending the letter to the commissary of police, notwithstanding the advice of his anonymous friend, or perhaps because of that advice, when suddenly the idea occurred to him that it might be some personal enemy whom he alone should recognize and over whom, if such were the case, he alone would gain any advantage, as Fiesco had done over the Moor who would have killed him. We know the Count's vigorous and daring mind, denying anything to be impossible, with that energy which marks the great man. From his past life, from his resolution to shrink from nothing, the Count had acquired an inconceivable relish for the contests in which he had engaged, sometimes against nature, that is to say, against God and sometimes against the world, that is, against the devil. "'They do not want my papers,' said Monte Cristo. "'They want to kill me. They are no robbers, but assassins. I will not allow the prefect of police to interfere with my private affairs. I am rich enough, forsooth, to distribute his authority on this occasion.' The Count recalled Baptistin, who had left the room after delivering the letter. "'Return to Paris,' said he. "'Assemble the servants who remain there. "'I want all my household at Auteuil.' "'But will no one remain in the house, my lord?' asked Baptistin. "'Yes, the porter.' "'My lord will remember 
that the lodge is at a distance from the house well the house might be stripped without his hearing the least noise by whom by thieves you are a fool monsieur baptistin thieves might strip the house it would annoy me less than to be disobeyed baptistin bowed you understand me said the count bring your comrades here one and all but let everything remain as usual only close the shutters of the ground floor and those of the second floor you know they are never closed go the count signified his intention of dining alone and that no one but ali should attend him having dined with his usual tranquillity and moderation the count making a signal to ali to follow him went out by the side gate and on reaching the bois de boulogne turned apparently without design towards paris and at twilight found himself opposite his house in the champs elysees all was dark one solitary feeble light was burning in the porter's lodge about forty paces distant from the house as baptistin had said monte cristo leaned against a tree and with that scrutinizing glance which was so rarely deceived looked up and down the avenue examined the passers-by and carefully looked down the neighboring streets to see that no one was concealed ten minutes passed thus and he was convinced that no one was watching him he hastened to the side door with ali entered hurriedly and by the servant's staircase of which she had the key gained his bedroom without opening or disarranging a single curtain without even the porter having the slightest suspicion that the house which he supposed empty contained its chief occupant arrived in his bedroom the count motioned to ali to stop then he passed into the dressing-room which he examined everything appeared as usual the precious secretary in its place and the key in the secretary he double locked it took the key returned to the bedroom door removed the double staple of the bolt and went in meanwhile ali had procured the arms the count required namely a short carbine and a pair of double-barreled pistols with which as sure an aim might be taken as with a single-barreled one thus armed the count held the lives of five men in his hands it was about half-past nine the count and ali ate in haste a crust of bread and drank a glass of spanish wine then monte cristo slipped aside one of the movable panels which enabled him to see into the adjoining room he had within his reach his pistols and carbine and ali standing near him held one of the small arabian hatchets whose form has not varied since the crusades through one of the windows of the bedroom on a line with that in the dressing-room the count could see into the street two hours passed thus it was intensely dark still ali thanks to his wild nature and the count thanks doubtless to his long confinement could distinguish in the darkness the slightest movement of the trees the little light in the lodge had long been extinct it might be expected that the attack if indeed an attack was projected would be made from the staircase of the ground floor and not from a window in monte cristo's opinion the villain sought his life not his money it would be his bedroom they would attack and they must reach it by the back staircase or by the window in the dressing-room the clock of the invalide struck a quarter to twelve 
the west wind bore on its moistened gusts the doleful vibration of the three strokes as the last stroke died away the count thought he heard a slight noise in the dressing-room this first sound or rather this first grinding was followed by a second then a third at the fourth the count knew what to expect a firm and well-practiced hand was engaged in cutting the four sides of a pane of glass with a diamond the count felt his heart beat more rapidly inured as men may be to danger forewarned as they may be of peril they understand by the fluttering of the heart and the shuddering of the frame the enormous difference between a dream and a reality between the project and the execution however monte cristo only made a sign to apprise ali who understanding that danger was approaching from the other side drew nearer to his master monte cristo was eager to ascertain the strength and number of his enemies the window whence the noise proceeded was opposite the opening by which the count could see into the dressing-room he fixed his eyes on that window he distinguished a shadow in the darkness then one of the panes became quite opaque as if a sheet of paper was stuck on the outside then the square cracked without falling through the opening an arm was passed to find the fastening then a second the window turned on its hinges and a man entered he was alone that's a daring rascal whispered the count at that moment ali touched him slightly on the shoulder he turned ali pointed to the window of the room in which they were facing the street i see said he there are two of them one does the work while the other stands guard he made a sign to ali not to lose sight of the man in the street and turned to the one in the dressing-room the glass cutter had entered and he was feeling his way his arms stretched out before him at last he appeared to have made himself familiar with his surroundings there were two doors he bolted them both when he drew near to the bedroom door monte cristo expected that he was coming in and raised one of his pistols but he simply heard the sound of the bolts sliding in their copper rings it was only a precaution the nocturnal visitor ignorant of the fact that the count had removed the staples might now think himself at home and pursue his purpose with full security alone and free to act as he wished the man then drew from his pocket something which the count could not discern placed it on a stand then went straight to the secretary felt the lock and contrary to his expectation found that the key was missing but the glass cutter was a prudent man who had provided for all emergencies the count soon heard the rattling of a bunch of skeleton keys such as the locksmith brings when called to force a lock and which thieves call nightingales doubtless from the music of their nightly song when they grind against the bolt aha whispered monte cristo with a smile of disappointment he is only a thief but the man in the dark could not find the right key he reached the instrument he had placed on the stand touched a spring and immediately a pale light just bright enough to render objects distinct was reflected on his hands and countenance by heavens exclaimed monte cristo starting back it is ali raised his hatchet don't stir whispered monte cristo and put down your hatchet we shall require no arms 
then he added some words in a low tone for the exclamation which surprise had drawn from the count faint as it had been had startled the man who remained in the pose of the old knife grinder it was an order the count had just given for immediately ali went noiselessly and returned bearing a black dress and a three-cornered hat meanwhile monte cristo had rapidly taken off his greatcoat waistcoat and shirt and one might distinguish by the glimmering through the open panel that he wore a pliant tunic of steel mail of which the last in france where daggers are no longer dreaded was worn by king louis sixteenth who feared the dagger at his breast and whose head was cleft with a hatchet the tunic soon disappeared under a long cassock as did his hair under a priest's wig the three-cornered hat over this effectually transformed the count into an abbe the man hearing nothing more stood erect and while monte cristo was completing his disguise had advanced straight to the secretary whose lock was beginning to crack under his nightingale try again whispered the count who depended on the secret spring which was unknown to the picklock clever as he might be try again you have a few minutes work there and he advanced to the window the man whom he had seen seated on a fence had got down and was still pacing the street but strange as it appeared he cared not for those who might pass from the avenue of the champs elysees or by the faubourg saint honore his attention was engrossed with what was passing at the counts and his only aim appeared to be to discern every movement in the dressing-room monte cristo suddenly struck his finger on his forehead and a smile passed over his lips then drawing near to ali he whispered remain here concealed in the dark and whatever noise you hear whatever passes only come in or show yourself if i call you ali bowed in token of strict obedience monte cristo then drew a lighted taper from a closet and when the thief was deeply engaged with his lock silently opened the door taking care that the light should shine directly on his face the door opened so quietly that the thief heard no sound but to his astonishment the room was suddenly illuminated he turned ah good evening my dear monsieur Caderousse," said monte cristo what are you doing here at such an hour the abbe Boussoni, exclaimed Caderousse, and not knowing how this strange apparition could have entered when he had bolted the doors he let fall his bunch of keys and remained motionless and stupefied the count placed himself between Caderousse and the window thus cutting off from the thief his only chance of retreat the abbe Boussoni, repeated Caderousse, fixing his haggard gaze on the count yes undoubtedly the abbe Boussoni himself replied monte cristo and i am very glad you recognize me dear monsieur Caderousse. it proves you have a good memory for it must be about ten years since we last met this calmness of Boussoni, combined with his irony and boldness staggered Caderousse. the abbe the abbe murmured he clinching his fists and his teeth chattering so you would rob the count of monte cristo continued the false abbe reverend sir murmured Caderousse, seeking to regain the window which the count pitilessly blocked reverend sir i don't know believe me i take my oath a pane of glass out continued the count a dark lantern 
a bunch of false keys, a secretary half-forced. It is tolerably evident. Caderousse was choking. He looked around for some corner to hide in, some way of escape. Come, come, continued the Count. I see you are still the same. An assassin. Reverend sir, since you know everything, you know it was not I, it was La Caconte that was proved at the trial since I was only condemned to the galleys. Is your time then expired, since I find you in a fair way to return there? No, Reverend sir, I have been liberated by someone. That someone has done society a great kindness. Ah, said Caderousse, I had promised. And you are breaking your promise, interrupted Monte Cristo. Alas, yes, said Caderousse very uneasily. A bad relapse that will lead you, if I mistake not, to the Place de Greve. So much the worse, so much the worse, diavolo, as they say in my country. Reverend sir, I am impelled. Every criminal says the same thing. Poverty. Pah, said Bussoni disdainfully. Poverty may make a man beg, steal a loaf of bread at a baker's door, but not cause him to open a secretary in a house supposed to be inhabited. And when the jeweller Johannes had just paid you forty thousand francs for the diamond I had given you, and you killed him to get the diamond and the money both, was that also poverty? Pardon, reverend sir, said Caderousse, you have saved my life once. Save me again. That is but poor encouragement. Are you alone, reverend sir, or have you there soldiers ready to seize me? I am alone, said the abbe, and I will again have pity on you, and will let you escape at the risk of the fresh miseries my weakness may lead to, if you tell me the truth. Ah, reverend sir, cried Caderousse, clasping his hands and drawing nearer to Monte Cristo. I may indeed say, you are my deliverer. You mean to say you have been freed from confinement? Yes, that is true, reverend sir. Who was your liberator? An Englishman. What was his name? Lord Wilmore. I know him. I shall know if you lie. Ah, reverend sir, I tell you the simple truth. Was this Englishman protecting you? No, no, not me, but a young Corsican, my companion. What was this Corsican's name? Benedetto. Is that his Christian name? He had no other. He was a foundling. Then this young man escaped with you? He did. In what way? We were working at Saint-Mondrier, near Toulon. Do you know Saint-Mondrier? I do. In the hour of rest between noon and one o'clock, galley slaves have a nap after dinner. We may well pity the poor fellows, said the abbe. Nay, said Caderousse, one can't always work. One is not a dog. So much the better for the dogs, said Monte Cristo. While the rest slept, then we went away a short distance. We severed our fetters with a file the Englishman had given us, and swam away. And what is become of this Benedetto? I don't know. You ought to know. No, in truth, 
We parted at hier. And to give more weight to his protestation, Caderousse advanced another step towards the abbe, who remained motionless in his place, as calm as ever, and pursuing his interrogation. "'You lie,' said the abbe Boussoni, with a tone of irresistible authority. "'Reverend sir, you lie. This man is still your friend, and you, perhaps, make use of him as your accomplice.' "'Oh, reverend sir, since you left Toulon, what have you lived on? Answer me.' "'On what I could get.' "'You lie,' repeated the abbe a third time, with a still more imperative tone. Caderousse, terrified, looked at the count. "'You have lived on the money he has given you.' "'True,' said Caderousse. "'Benedetto has become the son of a great lord.' "'How can he be the son of a great lord?' "'A natural son.' "'And what is that great lord's name?' "'The Count of Monte Cristo.' the very same in whose house we are in benedetto the count's son replied monte cristo astonished in his turn well i should think so since the count has found him a false father since the count gives him four thousand francs a month and leaves him five hundred thousand francs in his will ah yes said the fictitious abbe who began to understand and what a name does the young man bear meanwhile Andrea Cavalcanti. Is it then that young man whom my friend the Count of Monte Cristo has received into his house, and who is going to marry Mademoiselle Danglars? Exactly. And you suffer that, you wretch, you who know his life and his crime. Why should I stand in a comrade's way? said Caderousse. You are right. It is not you who should apprise Monsieur Danglars. It is I. Do not do so, reverend sir. Why not? Because you would bring us to ruin. And you think that to save such villains as you, I will become an abettor of their plot, an accomplice in their crimes? Reverend sir, said Caderousse, drawing still nearer, I will expose all. To whom? To Monsieur Danglars. "'By heaven!' cried Caderousse, drawing from his waistcoat an open knife and striking the Count in the breast. "'You shall disclose nothing, reverend sir.' To Caderousse's great astonishment, the knife, instead of piercing the Count's breast, flew back blunted. At the same moment, the Count seized with his left hand the assassin's wrist and wrung it with such strength that the knife fell from his stiffened fingers, and Caderousse uttered a cry of pain." But the Count, disregarding his cry, continued to wring the bandit's wrist until his arm being dislocated, he fell first on his knees, then flat on the floor. The Count then placed his foot on his head, saying, "'I now know what restrains me from crushing the skull, rascal.' "'Oh, mercy, mercy!' cried Caderousse. The Count withdrew his foot. "'Rise,' said he. Caderousse rose. "'What a wrist you have, reverend sir,' said Caderousse, stroking his arm, all bruised by the fleshy pincers which had held it. "'What a wrist!' "'Silence! God gives me strength to overcome a wild beast like you. In the name of that God I act, 
remember that wretch and to spare thee at this moment is still serving him oh said caderousse groaning with pain take this pen and paper and write what i dictate i don't know how to write reverend sir you lie take this pen and write caderousse awed by the superior power of the abbe sat down and wrote sir the man whom you are receiving at your house and to whom you intend to marry your daughter is a felon who escaped with me from confinement at toulon he was number fifty-nine and i number fifty-eight he was called benedetto but he is ignorant of his real name having never known his parents sign it continued the count but you would ruin me if i sought your ruin fool i should drag you to the first guard-house besides when that note is delivered in all probability you will have no more to fear sign it caderousse signed it the address to monsieur the baron d'anglars banker rue de la chaussee d'antin caderousse wrote the address the abbe took the note now said he that suffices be gone which way the way you came you wish me to get out at the window you got in very well oh you have some design against me reverend sir idiot what design can i have why then not let me out of the door what would be the advantage of waking the porter ah reverend sir tell me do you wish me dead i wish what god wills but swear that you will not strike me as i go down cowardly fool what do you intend doing with me i ask you what can i do i have tried to make you a happy man and you have turned out a murderer oh monsieur said caderousse make one more attempt try me once more i will said the count listen you know if i may be relied on yes said caderousse if you arrive safely at home what have i to fear except from you if you reach your home safely leave paris leave france and wherever you may be so long as you conduct yourself well i will send you a small annuity for if you return home safely then then asked caderousse shuddering then i shall believe god has forgiven you and i will forgive you too as tr true as i am a christian stammered caderousse you will make me d die of fright now be gone said the count pointing to the window caderousse scarcely yet relying on this promise put his legs out of the window and stood on the ladder now go down said the abbe folding his arms understanding he had nothing more to fear from him caderousse began to go down then the count brought the taper to the window that it might be seen in the champs elysees that a man was getting out of the window while another held a light what are you doing reverend sir suppose a watchman should pass and he blew out the light he then descended but it was only when he felt his foot touch the ground that he was satisfied of his safety monte cristo returned to his bedroom and glancing rapidly from the garden to the street he saw first caderousse who after walking to the end of the garden fixed his ladder against the wall at a different part from where he came in 
the count then looking over into the street saw the man who appeared to be waiting run in the same direction and place himself against the angle of the wall where caderousse would come over caderousse climbed the ladder slowly and looked over the coping to see if the street was quiet no one could be seen or heard the clock of the invalide struck one then caderousse sat astride the coping and drawing up his ladder passed it over the wall then he began to descend or rather to slide down by the two stanchions which he did with an ease which proved how accustomed he was to the exercise but once started he could not stop in vain did he see a man start from the shadow when he was halfway down in vain did he see an arm raised as he touched the ground before he could defend himself that arm struck him so violently in the back that he let go the ladder crying help a second blow struck him almost immediately in the side and he fell calling help murder then as he rolled on the ground his adversary seized him by the hair and struck him a third blow in the chest this time caderousse endeavored to call again but he could only utter a groan and he shuddered as the blood flowed from his three wounds the assassin finding that he no longer cried out lifted his head up by the hair his eyes were closed and the mouth was distorted the murderer supposing him dead let fall his head and disappeared then caderousse feeling that he was leaving him raised himself on his elbow and with a dying voice cried with great effort murder i am dying help reverend sir help this mournful appeal pierced the darkness the door of the back staircase opened then the side gate of the garden and ali and his master were on the spot with lights end of chapter 82「we are here take courage oh it's all over you are come too late you are come to see me die what blows what blood he fainted ali and his master conveyed the wounded man into a room monte cristo motioned to ali to undress him and he then examined his dreadful wounds my god he exclaimed thy vengeance is sometimes delayed but only that it may fall the more effectually ali looked at his master for further instructions bring here immediately the king's attorney monsieur de villefort who lives in the faubourg saint honore as you pass the lodge wake the porter and send him for a surgeon ali obeyed leaving the abbe alone with caderousse who had not yet revived when the wretched man again opened his eyes the count looked at him with a mournful expression of pity and his lips moved as if in prayer a surgeon reverend sir a surgeon 
said Caderousse. "'I have sent for one,' replied the abbe. "'I know he cannot save my life, but he may strengthen me to give my evidence.' "'Against whom?' "'Against my murderer.' "'Did you recognize him?' "'Yes. It was Benedetto.' "'The young Corsican?' "'Himself.' "'Your comrade?' "'Yes. After giving me the plan of his house, doubtless hoping I should kill the Count, and he thus become his heir, or that the Count would kill me and I should be out of his way, he waylaid me and has murdered me.' "'I have also sent to the procureur.' "'He will not come in time. I feel my life fast ebbing.' "'Wait a moment,' said Monte Cristo. He left the room and returned in five minutes with the file. The dying man's eyes were all the time riveted on the door, through which he hoped succour would arrive. "'Hasten, reverend sir, hasten, I shall faint again.' Monte Cristo approached and dropped on his purple lips three or four drops of the contents of the file. Caderousse drew a deep breath. "'Oh!' said he that is life to me more more two drops more would kill you replied the abbe oh send for someone to whom i can denounce the wretch shall i write your deposition you can sign it yes yes said caderousse and his eyes glistened at the thought of this posthumous revenge monte cristo wrote i die murdered by the corsican benedetto my comrade in the galleys at toulouse numero cinquante-neuf quick quick said caderousse or i shall be unable to sign it monte cristo gave the pen to caderousse who collected all his strength signed it and fell back on his bed saying you will relate all the rest reverend sir you will say he calls himself andrea cavalcanti he lodges at the hotel des princes oh i am dying he again fainted the abbe made him smell the contents of the file and he again opened his eyes his desire for revenge had not forsaken him oh, you will tell all i have said will you not reverend sir yes and much more what more will you say i will say he had doubtless given you the plan of this house in the hope the count would kill you i will say likewise he had apprised the count by a note of your intention and the count being absent i read the note and sat up to await for you and he will be guillotined will be not said caderousse promise me that and i will die with that hope i will say continued the count that he followed and watched you the whole time and when he saw you leave the house ran to the angle of the wall to conceal himself did you see all that remember my words if you return home safely i shall believe god has forgiven you and i will forgive you also and you did not warn me cried caderousse raising himself on his elbows you knew i should be killed on leaving this house and did not warn me no for i saw god's justice placed in the hands of benedetto 
and should have thought it sacrilege to oppose the designs of providence god's justice speak not of it reverend sir if god were just you know how many would be punished who now escape patience said the abbe in a tone which made the dying man shudder have patience caderousse looked at him with amazement besides said the abbe god is merciful to all as he has been to you he is first a father then a judge do you then believe in god said caderousse had i been so unhappy as not to believe in him until now said monte cristo i must believe on seeing you caderousse raised his clinched hands towards heaven listen said the abbe extending his hand over the wounded man as if to command him to believe this is what the god in whom on your deathbed you refuse to believe has done for you he gave you health strength regular employment even friends a life in fact which a man might enjoy with a calm conscience instead of improving these gifts rarely granted so abundantly this has been your course you have given yourself up to sloth and drunkenness and in a fit of intoxication have ruined your best friend help cried caderousse i require a surgeon not a priest perhaps i am not mortally wounded i may not die perhaps they can yet save my life your wounds are so far mortal that without the three drops i gave you you would now be dead listen then ah oh, murmured caderousse what a strange priest you are you drive the dying to despair instead of consoling them listen continued the abbe when you had betrayed your friend god began not to strike but to warn you poverty overtook you you had already passed half your life in coveting that which you might have honorably acquired and already you contemplated crime under the excuse of want when god worked a miracle in your behalf sending you by my hands a fortune brilliant indeed for you who had never possessed any but this unexpected unhoped for unheard of fortune sufficed you no longer when you once possessed it you wish to double it and how by a murder you succeeded and then god snatched it from you and brought you to justice it was not i who wished to kill the jew said caderousse it was la carconte yes said monte cristo and god i cannot say injustice for his justice would have slain you but god in his mercy spared your life pardieu to transport me for life how merciful you thought it a mercy then miserable wretch the coward who feared death rejoiced at perpetual disgrace for like all galley slaves you said i may escape from prison i cannot from the grave and you said truly the way was opened for you unexpectedly an englishman visited toulon who had vowed to rescue two men from infamy and his choice fell on you and your companion you received a second fortune money and tranquillity were restored to you and you who had been condemned to a felon's life might live as other men then wretched creature then you tempted god a third time 
"'I have not enough,' you said, "'when you had more than you before possessed, "'and you committed a third crime, "'without reason, without excuse. "'God is wearied. "'He has punished you.' Caderousse was fast sinking. "'Give me a drink,' said he. "'A thirst. "'I burn.' Monte Cristo gave him a glass of water. "'And yet that villain Benedetto will escape.' "'No one, I tell you, will escape. "'Benedetto will be punished.' "'Then you too will be punished, "'for you did not do your duty as a priest. "'You should have prevented Benedetto from killing me.' "'I?' said the Count, with a smile which petrified the dying man. "'When you had just broken your knife against the coat of mail which protected my breast?' "'Yet perhaps if I had found you humble and penitent, "'I might have prevented Benedetto from killing you. "'But I found you proud and bloodthirsty, "'and I left you in the hands of God.' "'I do not believe there is a God,' howled Caderousse. "'You do not believe it. You lie! You lie!' "'Silence!' said the abbe. "'You will force the last drop of blood from your veins.' "'What, you do not believe in God when he is striking you dead? "'You will not believe in him who requires but a prayer, a word, a tear, and he will forgive. "'God, who might have directed the assassin's dagger so as to end your career in a moment, "'has given you this quarter of an hour for repentance. "'Reflect, then, wretched man, and repent.' "'No,' said Caderousse, "'no, I will not repent.' there is no god there is no providence all comes by chance there is a providence there is a god said monte cristo of whom you are a striking proof as you lie in utter despair denying him while i stand before you rich happy safe and entreating that god in whom you endeavour not to believe while in your heart you still believe in him "'But who are you, then?' asked Caderousse, fixing his dying eyes on the Count. "'Look well at me,' said Monte Cristo, putting the light near his face. "'Well, the Abbé, the Abbé Boussoni.' Monte Cristo took off the wig which disfigured him, and let fall his black hair which added so much to the beauty of his pallid features. "'Oh!' said Caderousse, thunderstruck. "'But for that black hair, I should say you were the Englishman, Lord Wilmore.' "'I am neither the Abbe Bussoni nor Lord Wilmore,' said Monte Cristo. "'Think again. Do you not recollect me?' There was a magic effect in the Count's words, which once more revived the exhausted powers of the miserable man. "'Yes,' indeed said he i think i have seen you and known you formerly yes caderousse you have seen me you knew me once who then are you and why if you knew me do you let me die because nothing can save you your wounds are mortal had it been possible to save you i should have considered it another proof of god's mercy and i would again have endeavoured to restore you i swear by my father's tomb 
by your father's doom said Calarus, supported by a supernatural power and half raising himself to see more distinctly the man who had just taken the oath which all men hold sacred who then are you the count had watched the approach of death he knew this was the last struggle he approached the dying man and leaning over him with a calm and melancholy look he whispered i am i am and his almost closed lips uttered a name so low that the count himself appeared afraid to hear it Caderousse, who had raised himself on his knees and stretched out his arm tried to draw back then clasping his hands and raising them with a desperate effort oh my god my god said he pardon me for having denied thee thou dost exist thou art indeed man's father in heaven and his judge on earth my god my lord i have long despised thee pardon me my god receive me o oh my lord caderousse sighed deeply and fell back with a groan the blood no longer flowed from his wounds he was dead one said the count mysteriously his eyes fixed on the corpse disfigured by so awful a death ten minutes afterwards the surgeon and the procureur arrived the one accompanied by the porter the other by ali and were received by the abbe busoni who was praying by the side of the corpse end of chapter 83